Hi, my name is DeAndre Sinet, and I am your host for a Distinct Limbs podcast. I have a special guest who I will allow to introduce themselves. Hi, my name's Chantal. Um, I'm from Leicester in England. Okay, and Chantel, what is your occupation and how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 38 years old and I work for the council, um, for Leicestershire County Council, in children's services. Ah, okay. Sounds interesting. What, what exactly is it that you do? So I work with children and families, supporting them um, you know, through difficult, difficult times. Um, it can be really rewarding, so I do enjoy it in some ways, but it can be very challenging also as well. Mm. But yeah, I, I do enjoy it. It's, every day is different. Mm. I'm meeting different people. So yeah. Is that something you always wanted to do when you were growing up? Uh, no, I always knew that I had kind of a caring side of me and I wanted to help people. I, when I was younger, I didn't think I'd do this job. Hmm. But, yeah, I'm glad that I am doing it and that, you know, I am I'm in this kind of industry. Okay. So what uh, what was your life like when you were growing up? Okay, so I have two sisters Mm-hmm. I have an older sister and a younger sister. So you're in the middle? I'm the middle child, yes. Okay. Uh, which is quite good. Um, I'm a middle child as well, so okay. I can dig it. <laughs> yeah, I can dig it. Okay. So yeah, I grew up in a single parent household. So it was just um, my sisters and my mom. Mm-hmm. And um, we've got really big um, family mm-hmm. in Leicester and kind of outside of Leicester as well but I you know I just remember being um seeing aunts and cousins all the time grandparents so yeah we were very kind of family orientated and yeah it was I'll say I had a good childhood okay so it was uh you your mom and your sisters Mm -hmm. um single parent household uh what was it like financially like how did your mom handle that what what did she do for a living uh it was tough um so when we were very young, we, I don't know what you call it in the States, but they have kind of a, a benefit system here. My mum didn't work because obviously with childcare and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we got a bit older, she did various different jobs. You know, I remember times when she had two, she was juggling two, three jobs at the same time. So yeah, it was tough for my mum. Because she she had, you know, three children to provide for. Mm. She was on her own, one kind of wage, bills to pay. Mm. But she always kind of made sure that we, you know, we didn't go without. She always made sure that we had everything that we needed and she worked hard. She didn't have a career as such. She Mm. didn't go to university or anything like that. She just did jobs that, you know, like catering and various different jobs um, she did go back to college she did hairdressing for a while mm-hmm. but yeah she's, she's she did lots of different things and she now works for the council is also the, the council in Leicester also oh. um, in the housing department she's worked there for a number of years now so yeah but it was it was tough you know as a child you will always want like the latest thing and um, Christmases were tough but yeah, we got by, and like I said, we always had what we needed. 
but we just didn't get you know the extra luxuries and holidays and things like that okay do you think your mom managed the money well that she was bringing in yeah you know because when you're a single parent and you know you're relying on just your one income you have to budget there's there's no way around it you've got bills to pay you've got mm. uh food you know to buy you've got clothes for your children so you have to you i think you learn that i'm a single parent myself and i think you do learn that very very early on mm. to how to budget and um yeah get the best out of your money really go to you know, you buy the cheaper brands in the supermarket and things like that because you, you, you try and budget your money as best you, as you can. Okay, you, you said you're a single mother as well. How many children do you have? So I have two children. I have two boys, uh, 11 and 16. Um, yeah, it's been tough. So I kind of know what my mum went through when I was younger. Mm. But I feel that I'm maybe in a better position than my mum because I... Went to college, I went to university, ah. I've, got a, I've got a decent job with a decent e- income. Um, so yeah, it's still tough, but you know, I've been able to buy a house um, last year, which I've always wanted to do, and okay. being a single person, it felt like it was never going to happen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I managed to do it, and yeah, I'm quite comfortable at the moment. So, so I want to ask, what what motivated you to go to university? And I, I know you said that uh, the budgeting that came from, I think, you seeing your mother having to budget her mother and then you being a single parent, you having to budget your own money. But what what drove you to go to university? What okay. drove you to, to say, hey, I'm going to invest in myself? So that couldn't have been easy either. Yeah. I went back to college as a mature student. So I had my son, my first son, when I was um, 21. And up until that point, I mean, I'd when I finished school, I tried college. I didn't really get on with it. I didn't consider myself very academic. I, I found it really tough. Mm. So I dropped out and I just worked you know, I worked in elderly care homes. I worked various different jobs. And then I had my first son. Um, and I was with my partner at the time. So things weren't too bad. But then as my son got to a certain age, I just felt like I needed to be a role model for him. I didn't want to be just not really doing anything with my life Mm -hmm. and not have a career. So I decided to enroll in college. I did a hair and beauty course and I really, really enjoyed that. Got my certificates. um, And then that just, it just snowballed from there. Then I decided to go and do a a course in psychology and sociology. Mm And then I went from there, I went on to university. But the my motivation was my children. Mm. I mean, when I was at university, I um my my youngest son was seven months old when I started. Mm. And so that was really, really tough as well because he spent a lot of time in nursery. Um, you know, when I was studying, my mum supported me a lot and 
took them so I could have a bit of time to myself to get on with my studies. So it's it was tough. Like you make a lot of sacrifices, mm. but in the long run, I'm glad I did it because I'm in a better position now, and I'm now showing my children, even if they don't choose to go to university, but you know whatever it is they want to do. I I know, and they can see that if you pursue it, then you can you can do it. Okay, I mean, just listening to you talk, it made me think about my own children. I mean, I'm living and working in the UK, and you know they live primarily with their moms. So I'm just thinking about how that affects their day to day lives. Because mm. you know when I'm when I'm there, I do my best to pick them up when they're, you know, when they need to go to school, doctors' appointments, those types of things, things that people don't even mention. But it, you know, it's part of being a parent, mm -hmm. and the logistics of that isn't always the easiest thing to do. So yeah. I say that to say I take my hat off to you. Yeah. It's not an easy thing to do. I think when you've got a family, it's very difficult to try and juggle family life and work or um, studies or whatever it may be. Because you want to be that parent. You want to be there for your children. You want to be able to do all those things. Mm -hmm. pick them, Take them to school, pick them up, take them to... And sometimes I wasn't able to do that. And I felt guilty for that. Mm. But then, you know, it's just all a balancing act. Right. Now, I want to change speed a little bit because a Distinct Lens podcast is a platform for us to share our experiences for the purpose of us leveling up in terms of financial intelligence so that we can start to practice more group economics and not just in our localized regions or states or countries that we live in. I mean, on a global scale. So I, it's a big vision I have for this. Mm -hmm. So I say that to say, do you think the education that you received uh before you went to university and during university prepared you to handle money. I know a lot of your experience came firsthand from what you saw your mother doing and also from you being a single mother and having a budget. But outside of that, do you think the education system prepared you to handle, uh, handle your money or manage your money? No, not at all. Not really at all. Mm. Um, I think unless you choose, for example, business as a subject that you, area that you want to study, mm then no, I don't think, other than maths, no, I, I don't feel that. Just one caveat, <laughs> I, I find it funny when I hear people I know from the UK say, say maths, yeah. Yeah. and we say math singular, yeah. you guys say maths plural, mm. I always find it interesting. <laughs> but yeah, so you're saying outside of maths, um, there wasn't any preparation to, to, no. for money management. And I think you're right, you just learn from your surroundings, your upbringing and what you see about money, whether that's you've got a lot of money, you think that, yeah, there's lots of money out there, or you've got a lack of money, so you know that money may be difficult to come by. So I think it has got a lot to do with your environment that you're brought up in and in terms of how you view money. Because hmm. that's where it's going to start, isn't it? Before you even start school, it's going to start from home. And yeah. what you see of money, home life. So I, I think this is a question that you would probably say yes to, but I want to ask the why behind the yes, if you do say yes. So do you think financial literacy is important in our communities? And when I say our communities, I'm talking about specifically our black and brown communities. Very, very important. Because as I said, from a from an early age, I think children need to be taught 
about money mm-hmm. in order to prepare them for later life and how to manage money and make money, obviously. So yeah, I think it's very, very important and there's probably not enough of that education out there because I don't, you know, in, in England, you know, most of the black population are either lower or middle kind of income mm-hmm. and there is a kind of a high high percentage of single parent households mm-hmm. so yeah and I know you mentioned your mom was a single parent so was your mom born and raised in the UK as well yes she was yeah okay and your dad is he from the UK yes okay yeah they were both born here yeah and where did, where did they originate from? So my dad is from uh, his side of the family from Antigua. Ah, in the Caribbean? Yeah. Okay. And then my mom's side of the family are from Jamaica. Ah, both in the Caribbean? Mm-hmm. And then they migrated to the UK? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I don't know if you heard of the Windrush. So back, I don't know, I think it was like the 50s or 60s, mm. no, I think it would have been 40s or 50s, um, The I think it was British Empire, kind of, they called on the Caribbean countries to come over mm. and help to rebuild the country, you know, offered them prospects and jobs. So there was a big boat that came over from the Caribbean that bought most and it was called the Windrush. Mm-hmm. Brought them over to this country to come here and settle and work, mm-hmm. and that's what my grandparents would have came over to England on that basis. Mm-hmm. But then when they got here, you know, because they were educated people, you know, there were nurses, doctors, and um, they were educated. Mm-hmm. And then when they got over here, because it was so racist, people didn't want to be seen by a black nurse or, oh. yeah, or anything. So they ended up doing the lower end jobs. So they would like drive buses, um, you know, they'd just do the kind of, yeah, really lower end jobs, although they were qualified, more than qualified to do the professions that they wanted to do. It was just such a racist country that they, they didn't get to do that. So that racism precluded them from actually taking advantage of the opportunities they had been promised. Mm. I want to ask, so do you think that that racism, that systemic bias, do you think that still has an effect on black people in the UK today? Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think it all comes from stereotypes. Um, You know, there's this stereotype of, of black people, you know, very negative. So whether it be drugs, Mm. violence, you know, I think there's a lot of those things attached to, to black people. And as we know, not everybody's like that. Yes, there are people that that do that, but obviously not everybody. And um, I think especially if you want to get into a very corporate white kind of industry, it can be quite tough. And let's face it, we relate to what is, um, you know, we relate to our similarity. So obviously white people are going to gravitate to to their own Mm. and pushing people further up and supporting them Mm. 
Whereas if you're black, you're probably just going to get left behind. And I'm not saying that it's not possible for black people in the UK to progress. Mm. But I think there definitely is kind of institutional racism still exists. So those stereotypes that you spoke of, have you ever had, has it affected your life? Like as a, as a black woman in the UK? Not massively. However, I did find that when I was a teenager, I used to, for example, I'd go into our city centre mm-hmm. and you call it a, a mall, we call it shopping centre. Mm-hmm. So I'd go into a shop and um, I'd notice someone either watching me or following me. Really? Yeah, because I was black and they probably thought I was going to be stealing. Um, at school, I felt very conscious that people, particularly white girls, might have felt me quite intimidating. Mm. So I made a conscious effort to be quite friendly and smiley because I didn't want, you know, I just wanted to break down that barrier. I didn't want to people to see my colour and stereotype me and think that I was, I don't know, some just really stuck up and ignorant and um so yeah only those small minor things nothing major in terms of racism i've experienced you know i've never had anyone actually i was going to say i've never had anyone call me names but i have um on the odd occasion when you say names like racial names but interestingly, it came from another black person. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. Could you could you expand on that? Um. Bit? So I've got quite full lips. Okay. And um, I remember a, a black boy at school calling me like rub, rubber lips, and I just at the time it was just so hurtful because I just thought. You know, you're black mm. yourself, and for you to call me that, and I, you know, when you're kids, you you say silly things to, like for a joke and to make everyone laugh. Mm. But I just thought, you know, I, I just wouldn't have expected that to come from a black person. Mm. But I don't ever recall having any kind of racial abuse from white people that I can remember. Now, you said you were aware of the stereotypes when you were younger and it seemed that you had to overcompensate to negate those stereotypes. How do you think that affected your personality development? Um, I think it helped me hmm. because I, it kind of made me be free to be who I was. Mm. So you were already a naturally friendly person yeah. who liked to be personal yeah. and smile. Yeah. And I could have quite easily, I don't know in the States, but here there was a certain stereotype of a, a black, a young black girl being quite, yeah, stuck up. Um, we call it screw face. So straight face, don't mess with me kind of aura, um, you know, maybe getting into fights. And that just wasn't me. 
I didn't I didn't even fit that anyway. Mm. And I just didn't want people to look at me and presume that I was that type of way. Okay. So it actually just allowed you to be more of who you are anymore. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So in your professional life, do you think you've experienced any of that systemic racism to date? No, honestly, no, because of the kind of person I am mm -hmm. and the, my personality and I'm quite sociable, you know, I'll talk to anyone. I think that's what's kind of helped me. I think, I think that's a good thing. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it's a, a testament to maybe the times. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you have colleagues or family members who had different experiences, but I think that's a positive that your mm. experience has been the yeah. way it has been. Yeah. Although I have heard, you know, it wasn't directly to do with my um, career or my work, but colleagues that I've worked with, I have heard them make comments that have made me think, mm. What do you mean? So... For example, there was, I had a colleague that I worked with and she was white and her daughter was white mm -hmm. and her daughter liked black guys. Mm -hmm. She, you know, that was just her preference. So whenever she'd have a boyfriend, mm -hmm. they were black. And they lived in a, quite a rural area mm -hmm. where there wasn't many black people. So I think they had a certain stereotype view of black males and although they didn't she didn't outright say that she didn't like it I just got the sense that she didn't really like the fact that her daughter dated black guys mm. you know she didn't say it outright but you know when you can just tell um so yeah just little subtle things that people would comment on or say kind of made me think actually I think I think you're you're a bit racist, you know. Something that I hear over and over again by people from the UK, uh, especially black people, but I've also heard uh, white people say the same thing, that racism is very subtle. Yes, it is. And they always say it doesn't compare to the way that it is in the United States. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I get the sense that some people think that's better. No. I think it's worse because it's so hard to to prove Mm. Like, for example, in the workplace, if you felt that you were being discriminated against because of your race, and it's so subtle that mm. you can't actually even prove it, it's even worse. When it's in your face and someone actually calls you a, a certain word or, you know, it's obvious, mm -hmm. then it's easier to kind of try and get some kind of justice. But it, when it's so subtle that actually you, you can't, it's just one person's word against the other. It's open to interpretation. Mm. Someone will probably say, oh, well, I didn't mean, you know, I didn't mean it in that way. Maybe you say that you've got, kind of got a chip on your shoulder or you're being paranoid. Mm. So, yeah, I think I think it's it can be worse in some ways. So, so just in that same line of thought, it just makes me think about the institutions here as particularly the commercial institutions. So the organization that you work for, um, 
like management, senior management, board members, would you say they look like you and me or would you, how would you characterize them? Not at all. Um, We have a few managers um, that are black, Mm. but, and there's probably one senior manager above the manager Mm -hmm. and that is it. The rest are white. The, The higher up you go, it's, it's just white. Do you think that's a coincidence? Mm, no, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's that culture, isn't it? Of, like I said earlier on, about you being comfortable in your surroundings and with your with your race of people. Mm. So it kind of just stays... I don't know, for example, if someone's at a, a top executive role mm. and they're about to retire and they know of somebody who's white, one of their colleague, old past colleagues or friends that could do that role, mm-hmm. then they're going to they're gonna help them out, aren't they? Yeah. Whereas they're not just going to say, oh, well, let's find a random black person to, to put in this role. Or a qualified black person. Well, yeah. Obviously, but if there was a black person at the top, then they would be able to have the opportunity to bring someone else up into that. So you've kind of got to be up there, haven't you, to be able to bring other people up with you. Yeah, and I think that's the problem that I've been seeing uh, in the United States, in the UK, even some other people that I talk to in different countries that have been colonized and are... Um, the ruling class, so to speak, are predominantly white. The higher you go up, the less people of color you see. Mm. And the more difficult it is to bring people up into those those stratas of opportunity. Which is sad, but it's it's like you said, if we don't ever get to the table, how can we bring someone else there? And for me, uh, that's an issue in and of itself. uh, Because I mean, even in my own experience, I've I've had a bit of success in my professional life. And even academically, the higher I went up, like I have a master's degree, there were hardly any black people. And I I have a background in business, so I have an MBA. There were hardly any black people in my higher level courses in undergrad as well as in, in grad school. And it just makes it even more difficult for me to find someone to relate to with the experiences that I've yeah. had. Um, yeah, it's, it's a bit disheartening sometimes, but it also motivates me to do even better. And when I see someone who is like-minded and looks like me, I, I, I want to help them. I want to do everything in my power to lift them up as well. So, yeah. And this is not just to bring a downer on the conversation. It's just <laughs> looking at it for what it is, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. So I want to I ask you, changing changing gears a little bit. Uh, do you ever talk about like your finances and how you budget your money with your friends and your family and your colleagues to say, hey, this is what I did. I'm now a homeowner. I have my own car. I'm doing well for myself. I was a single mother. I went to university. Like, those are a lot of accomplishments that, uh, you know, most people can't speak to. Hmm. 
Yeah, I talk to friends. To be fair, a lot of um, my kind of generation in my family have done well. We like the, most of us have been to university. Mm-hmm. We've got teachers, police officers, social workers, um, solicitors. And a solicitor is a lawyer. A lawyer, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you know, you talk about those things in passing in in day to day conversation mm. about money or things that you want to do or things that you have done so yeah it's just a natural kind of part of conversation i would say okay you know i also mentioned about group economics and it's not just us exchanging monies with each other it's also exchanging that information like you're talking Mm. about in passing i'm pretty sure you and your family members of the same generation who have had similar success the conversations are different from probably the conversations that your parents had with their generation yeah. and the type of information that's being exchanged. I bet that is a mm. lot different than it was. Yeah, yeah. And then that's what that's the progression you'd expect to happen. So then obviously the next generation, like my children, mm-hmm. you know, every generation wants them, them to surpass the previous one, you know, and do better than the previous one. So... Yeah, it's just a progression. Speaking of those young mm. black men that you're raising, mm. how are you preparing them to to handle finances? How are you preparing them to be successful <coughs> um, in this big wide world we live in? To be successful, uh, I mean, I, I don't, I, I can't say that I can give them any real knowledge on how to be successful as per se. But you know what I do say to them is you know, you've got to put the work in. You've Mm. got to be motivated. Nothing is just going to come to you. Nobody's going to say, there you go, here's a job or here's this opportunity. You've got to go out and get it. Mm. And you've got to work hard. Um, You know, the the money that they get, whether it's from myself, their father, you know, family members, you know, sometimes if they want something, I will make them use their own money. You know, so that they can learn mm-hmm. how to, okay, the, the value of things mm-hmm. and how to budget their money. So, I don't, it's not, it's, it's not really a conscious thing that you think you sit down with your children and think, right, well, we're going to talk about money now. So, right, you know, you've got this and it's just something that you naturally do as part of day to day life. That's interesting. So you said it's not something that you do consciously. It's something that you do naturally. Mm. Do you think it should be more of a conscious effort on the part of parents, specifically black and brown parents, to educate their children on finances? Yeah, probably. However, I think it's how you how you do that. Because, as you know, children can mm. very quickly switch off as soon as you sit them down and you want to talk about something serious and you, something important that you really want them to know, mm-hmm. they kind of switch off. If you just um, bring that into a natural conversation or make comments, you know, plant seeds here and there, mm-hmm. I think that's probably more effective. I agree. Because uh, I was that, uh, well, I, I'm that parent that sits mm-hmm. them down and mm-hmm. has that serious conversation and it gets all heavy and I'm mm-hmm. talking technical details. Mm-hmm. 
about saving and how to build your credit and why it's important to save your money and those type of topics. And I learned early on, my daughters, they shut off. Yeah, they do. Like, this is not interesting. Why are you always trying to teach us something? So now I do it in a way that's relatable to them. So if they'll ask me for something, I'll... I'll ask them, hey, we'll go do your research. Like last year, they, they wanted new phones, new iPhones. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll agree to that. But I want you to go and look at all, look, look at three or four different phones, similarly priced. Look at the specs of those phones mm-hmm. compared to the iPhones. And then we'll have a discussion about it. And if you still want an iPhone, I'll go ahead and get that for yeah. you. But I want them to do that type of research yeah. so they know, hey, I might get a better value for what I'm spending for this. And I say what I'm spending, I'm Mm -hmm. talking about me, not them. But just to have that type of mentality to say, hey, I have options and I can be wise about what I Mm -hmm. spend my money on. So I I totally agree. And I, um, you know, have a similar, I do a similar thing as well. You know, young people, this generation don't know how, not easy they've got it, but you know, they've got information at their fingertips, mm-hmm. literally. We didn't have that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I will always try to, you know, my children will ask me a question. And I'll, obviously, as a parent, I don't know if you've ever found this, but they expect you to always have the answer to everything. <laughs> and obviously, I don't know the answer to everything. Mm-hmm. And I'll encourage them to, like you said, research, mm-hmm. go and look on the internet, Google it, mm-hmm. find out. Um, so yeah, they they have got a real advantage of the fact that they are, they have got access to so much information at the click of a, of a you know of a button. Okay, so I asked in the pre-interview form uh, that I send out to all my guests. I asked uh, a list of ten questions. One of those questions was, "What was the most impactful?" Uh, book or podcast mm-hmm. or publication that you've ever heard or read or listened to and you said life loves you by louise hayes that's yeah. a book yeah what is that about yeah so it's kind of like a self-care self-help book mm-hmm. and it is basically what it says it is so you know life loves you it's about trying to just accept that you know the world Life isn't against you. Mm-hmm. Life wants to work with you mm-hmm. and for you. And, you know, whatever you put out there will come back to you. Good or bad? Well, yeah. Mm. This was more about focusing on the positive. Right. So, yeah, basically what you put out there and, you know, loving yourself, basically. And mm. there was a lot of little... um techniques that you could do like um one of them was like looking in the mirror and, and telling yourself that you you love yourself and that life loves you mm. and it was kind of a um a, a, a psychological thing where you would look visually at yourself um and then the more you do it it kind of gets instilled into you mm-hmm. because a lot of you know people's downfall is probably to do with lack of confidence and lack of self-esteem so that's where it's going to start if you're confident and you've got a high you know self-esteem then you can pretty much do anything (laughs) so that's kind of yeah the basis of of the book really okay sounds really interesting Mm. and 
how did that help you? I think it helped me to realise, because I will admit that I think sometimes I'm probably a bit too pessimistic. Mm. And I was conscious of it. And I think it just helped me to try and maybe be more of a um, yeah, more optimistic person mm. and just try and be more positive. Because as you say, as I said, what you put out is what you, what you're going to get back. So yeah, it's it's helped me in that way. Okay. Now I want to change gears a little bit. Again, um, so I'm pretty sure you're aware of the protests that are going on uh, that started actually back in the latter part of March, early part of April of this year in the United States. And it's led to a global movement that they now call, I hear people in the UK say the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. um, and for, for, I know for me in, in the States, like I participated in the protests in the early part of April because I was back in the States then. And for me, it wasn't just about Black Lives Matter and it wasn't just triggered by George Floyd's death. This was, this is hundreds of years of injustice that have been done to this specific group of people and we're just fed up. I recently heard on the news uh, about a guy and I'm not, not sure if you heard about this story. A guy named Jacob Blake. Yeah. They shot him in the back seven times. Mm -hmm. And apparently his child was in the back of the yeah. car. Yeah. I mean, I saw the video and it was like, you know, this, these are common occurrences. I don't know if you heard about Ahmad Aubrey. He's jogging down the street. A couple of white guys jump out the back of their truck, accost him in the street, and end up murdering him. Guy's minding his business. Hmm. Not a criminal. Even if he was, they don't have the right to do that. A lady named Brianna Taylor. Sleep in her home. Police come in and murder her. Now, you having young black men that you're raising, and I know you live in the UK, but when you hear stories like that, what what do you what are your thoughts? How do you feel? It's it's really scary and I know you kind of made a point of saying that we live in the UK and yes, we don't have guns over here. It's not an, a regular occurrence that someone would get shot. Mm -hmm. However, I still worry about my children being black males. Um, you know, there's another side to it, isn't it? It's kind of them maybe going down the wrong path, for mm -hmm. example and maybe getting killed by a gang member or, mm. you know, getting into all kinds of wrongdoings. So that, that worries me. I mean, I, I don't, to touch wood, you know, I don't think that would happen to my children. Um, but I know in parts of, in London, for example, mm -hmm. you know, I can't imagine bringing up a black male in London because there's so much knife crime, gangs, mm. um, and it, it must be a real battle to try and keep your child on the straight and narrow. Um, I do worry about how they're viewed in society as black males mm. and in terms of their opportunities. 
and yeah, just the stereotypes that are attached, as I said earlier, that are attached to them, the negative stereotypes. I, I don't want people to look at my sons as black males and think that they are a drug dealer or they're carrying a weapon or, you know, they're not educated. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not a nice feeling. Yeah. But to be honest, I think they are, I mean, my youngest, I think he's quite oblivious to it. I don't think he sees that he's viewed in a certain way. My oldest, who's 16, Mm. I think he does see, it's not, you know, in his face, he's not really, he's not experiencing any kind of major racism or stereotyping. But he has a couple of times, actually. So he's starting to, yeah, I think he's starting to learn that. Now that you say he has a couple times, would you mind? So, for example, in school, um, he felt, and again, this was the subtlety subtlety that we we spoke about earlier. Mm -hmm. So in school, he felt that, you know, if a white kid was talking, for example, in the in the class, mm. and then he spoke, mm. it would be him that would be, have been singled out. It would have been him that would have got detention. But then he's sitting there thinking, well, they did exactly the same thing. So mm. why have they got away with it? But yeah, I'm being punished. Mm. So he would see the those. Yeah. Um, one day he went to go and visit some friends in a rural village. Mm. And um, I think the next day I'd heard that somebody made a comment because he was obviously a black boy in a rural village where there's not many black people, mm. predominantly white. So he's he looked, you know, out of character being in that area. And then I heard the next day that somebody had made a comment and said that he must have been a drug dealer. Wow. Yeah, he must have been a drug dealer because obviously... Some of the people in that neighbourhood didn't recognise him and, yeah, that's what they thought. That's what they thought. And that's heartbreaking. Because, you know, my son's far from being a drug dealer. So, you know, thank God he hasn't had any issues with the police. But I do know of young boys his age, maybe older, that have have run into issues with the police. Mm. You know, there's a lot of racial profiling over here. Mm. So the stop and search. And if you're wearing a certain clothing, like hoodie or, you know, you've got a tracksuit, you you look a a certain way, you're more likely to get stopped and searched by the police. Mm. Because they have this view that, you know, there's a certain type of young black male that uh, are maybe pushing drugs or maybe carrying a weapon or a knife and that's what they kind of that's what they look for I remember you mentioned it in a conversation we had previously that you participated in the protests here yes in the UK yeah I want to ask what made you participate and how did you feel when you were protesting um, I just felt like I had to. Obviously, it was happening worldwide and it was heartbreaking to see what happened to George Floyd. And I know he's not 
you know, the first person. There was many more before him. There'll be probably many more after which there have been. And like you said, I think people are now at the stage where they've just had enough of being mm. treated like this. So I just wanted to go and show my support, really. And it felt really good when I was there because it was very, you know, I think people may expect when you go to a protest that it's just full of black people. But there were white people, there were eight. It was very mixed, mm. um, the turnout of the protest that I went to. And the most touching thing for me of all of it is they had like a, it was like a couple of minutes silence where everybody went down on one knee. Mm. And the whole of the, because it was in the in the town centre, so everybody, yeah, mm. everybody that was there was, you know, on their knees in silence, just obviously paying their respects. And I, that was just, yeah, that was really nice. All right, so my last question, and we're going to close this out. Um, what would you say to yourself if you were to give yourself a message 10 years into the future? What advice would you give yourself in terms of uh, what we've been talking about? You know, this, the socioeconomic status of black people in, in, in light of financial literacy and in, in light of the fact that you have children, like what what advice would you give yourself? Um, in the future, did you say? Yeah. Or if it makes it even easier, what advice would you give yourself ten years? If yeah. You're younger, ten years ago. I think I would have said believe in yourself mm -hmm. a lot more. Um, persevere be motivated don't give up try you know things are scary mm -hmm. but you know you're not going to live your life in the way that you want to if you're just scared of everything all the time so just basically just get through that and just do it even if it's scared if it feels scary just do it um, I think I would have told myself to find out more about money and business and finances. And I probably would have told myself, try not to um, get credit if you can't help it. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. If you can help it, don't don't get credit. Yeah. Okay. So I think that was a good conclusion, a good summary to our discussion. I think some key takeaways are nothing in life is going to be given to you. If you want something, you're going to have to work hard for it. And we need to be able to start bringing each other to the table. And if we can't bring each other to the table, let's create our own tables. Mm -hmm. Let's create our own tables. Uh, Chantel, it's been a pleasure. I hope everyone enjoyed this interview as much as I have. As, as much as I have. Uh, thank you for being a guest. Thanks for having me. No worries. And I wish you nothing but future success. You too. Thanks.